Welcome to the Director's Chair. My name is Michael Fullylove and I'm the Executive Director of the Lowy Institute. On the Director's Chair, I speak with political leaders and policymakers about their lives, their careers and their views on the world. My guest on this episode of the Director's Chair is the former Jordanian diplomat, UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and think tank president, Dr. Zaid Rad Al-Hussein. Zaid was born in Jordan into the Hashemite Raw family. He completed his undergraduate studies at Johns Hopkins University and earned a doctorate at Christ's College, Cambridge. He served as Jordan's permanent representative to the United Nations and ambassador to the United States and Mexico. In 2006, he was a candidate for UN Secretary General. In 2014, he was appointed the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights, serving in this role until 2018. Zaid currently serves as the CEO and President of the International Peace Institute in New York and as a Professor of the Practice of Law and Human Rights at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you, Zaid, for joining me from New York City for the Director's Chair. Uh, thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be with you. So, Zaid, let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your upbringing and your education, if you would. Yes, I have to dig deep into my memory. <laughs> Sometime in the 14th century, I was born. <laughs> it's a long time ago now, and so it seems. So I'm a child of the 60s. I was uh, born into this rather amazing Jordanian family, really extended Jordanian family led by the then King Hussein of Jordan at a time of what in the late 60s was very traumatic for Jordan, the Six-Day War, the loss of the West Bank, then subsequently in 1970 and 71, the essentially civil war in Jordan, the restoration of order. And my childhood, I think, was marked by much of that. It was an experience, I think, that was quite indelible in terms of then setting up my interests later on in life. In terms of those interests, you've had a long-term interest in the United Nations and an association with the organization. You served with the UN Protection Force in the former Yugoslavia as a political affairs officer. You were twice permanent representative to the United Nations. Tell us about your interest in the UN and your experiences with the United Nations aid. Yes. No, well, it happened almost by accident. I had developed an interest in understanding history, uh, developing a sort of a, a deeper interest in, in how history is framed, how narratives are framed. But I had been doing my military service, my national service. I was actually in the police, the desert police in Jordan, and was asked by my parents to take my youngest brother to the United States and rent a car uh, and drive all his uh, belongings up to his university and then fly back. And I really didn't want to do it, but uh, they left me with little choice. And so I flew over very grumpily to the US. I, I sort of dropped him, deposited him literally on the, on the street. <laughs> I didn't even help him carry the bags into his building and uh, drove back to New York. Uh, the flight to Jordan left quite late from New York. To fill in time, I called in a, a friend who uh, was in the UN and we met and he asked me about how I was enjoying my national duty, I suppose, my military service. I said, well, I was reaching the end and I wasn't enjoying it very much. And he suggested to me that I apply for peacekeeping. The recruitment window had opened at that very precise point in time for the former Yugoslavia. And so I was lucky. And um, a few weeks after that, I found myself in Zagreb 
And that was the start of my peacekeeping experience as a civilian. I had left the military service by that stage. And it was an extraordinary, overwhelming experience. I think for any young person to go through something like that, it will change you. Mm. Coming out of it, I learned many lessons which have stayed with me throughout the, the rest of my career at the UN. Because then I went back as a diplomat. I sort of came out of the UN secretariat, so to speak, and then I was at the UN as a diplomat. But not before I had met some truly remarkable people. And among them, Kofi Annan, who had the uh, honor to serve with in the last few months I was in the former Yugoslavia when he came in and I, I was his assistant for two to three months. So an extraordinary time for me, really. That was also a purple patch for the United Nations in the sense that the Cold War had ended and suddenly a lot of questions were on the table and people looked to the United Nations to help solve those problems. I guess it was a heady moment for many people in the organization at that time. Did it make you idealistic about the United Nations, a believer in its ability to make the world better? Well, there are two points I think that listeners have to remember. There are two forms of UN. There's the UN of member states, the interminable debates and discussions, mm. uh, you know, in which I spent 16 years and at the end in the Security Council. Mm. And many of them are very stale, lazy, flabby, anti-intellectual in, in the worst sense, if I can put it that way without seeming snobbish. Mm and uh, can leave people desperately seeking the exits. And then there's the other UN, which is the UN I began work in, and then later as High Commissioner, I, I was also familiar with the extraordinary courage of people who are in the, some of the most difficult and threatening places around the world, who do their work day in, day out, not even a, a second of complaints, and their dedication is extraordinary. Their courage is extraordinary. And it pains me when people confuse the two and sort of criticize the UN without properly appreciating their efforts. You know, we should have long time ago said they referred to a, a notation system with a UNM for member states who should bear most of the responsibility for you know, the mess that we're in at the moment. Uh, because the UN is just a reflection of them. It's not that much better than what we have out there. It's, it's just concentrated. Mm. Mm. <laughs> and then you have the secretariat where you, uh, questions could be asked of performance. Certainly they ought to be. But at the same time, there's amazing people within the secretariat doing really Herculean work and need to be commended regularly. A couple of decades later, you threw your hat into the ring uh, to be a candidate for the position of UN Secretary General, that is leading this organization that does such important work. Tell us a bit about that experience. <laughs> you were a young man. What prompted you to, uh, to put your hand up? What was it like? What did you learn from the process? <laughs> Must you remind me? I received two votes, two out of 15 <laughs> votes. At one stage, a, a candidate for the Secretary Generalship came to see me in Geneva, and I won't mention their name. <laughs> and I said, are you really sure that you should be consulting me because I, I'm an utterly failed candidate? I mean, it ought never have happened, really. The idea was that my name had been bandied about in the press and that the only possible and conceivable manner by which I could be elected would be a sort of dark horse candidate mm. if there were endless rounds on other candidates and none could come through or break through. But what happened is in June 2006, the Security Council changed the procedure. And I think it, it was wrong. And I still think it's wrong. Not because I lost, but I actually think it it's creates a huge problem. 
the Security Council decided that only formal nominees, nominees put forward formally by states would be considered. And hitherto, it, it had been the case that the council could look at any candidate from anywhere. They could be the head of an NGO. They could have uh, led one of the specialized uh, UN agencies. They need not to have worked for government, or they could be a, uh, someone within the organization itself. And suddenly, they came up with this rule which meant that there would be campaigns uh, sort of launched by governments, mm. elaborate spending, and essentially disempowering you know, poorer countries from putting forward candidates and in favor of richer countries who could afford campaigns. I mean, really sort of silly, and the decision still stands. And I, I wish they could reverse it because I think we'd get a much larger talent pool. Uh, in terms of uh, possible candidates for consideration. Um, so when, when I look back on it, I think, yes, I think you're the only one who remembers that I did uh, run. <laughs> so I, I have to hope that after this podcast, no one ever asks me again. I think you're being a bit hard on yourself, Zaid. <laughs> in any case, you missed out to Ban Ki-moon. You returned to the Jordanian diplomatic service. You did some other interesting things. But then in 2014, you were appointed to serve as the UN Human Rights Commissioner, which is one of the big jobs in the UN system. So tell us about that. How did you find yourself in that job and what surprised you about that role? So I was serving in the UN Security Council at the time. Previous to our entry into the Council, Jordan entered in January of 2014. We had three weeks to prepare and we went, we went straight into the presidency. But I had made it clear to my colleagues in Jordan that I was, after having served so long at the UN, I needed the break and I was thinking of leaving altogether. And so they, it was agreed that I served for six or seven months and then I would leave. In the meantime, the UN was searching for or put out a vacancy announcement for the post. But I also knew it's a terrifically difficult job. No government likes to be needled or audited on its human rights record. We still haven't reached a stage of maturity where governments can deal with it. And it's, of course, unsurprising because you're in that space between a government and its people and often reflecting the sentiments of those who are vastly at risk from government action. And of course, it can, through various uh, actions, can contribute to what in the government's eyes would see as delegitimizing them. So the power that can be wielded by this office, a small office in Geneva, is quite phenomenal. Not an accident that only 3% of the budget of the UN goes to human rights. I think because it's so potent and so powerful, because it can influence domestic public opinion, which can then change certain equations within countries. Eventually, of course, you can influence capital markets as well and access to capital. It's a very intelligent system because it's, it's like a, a large net. Authoritarians can carve in almost holes into it. But uh, like the liberal order, it always reassembles and reassembles even more as strongly than it did on the previous occasion. So te there's always temporary setbacks. But the overall arc of progress is very clear. And the very yearning for people the world over for the very same things. You know, I, I'm, I just don't buy this cultural relativism argument. Uh, it's sort of been peddled for so long. For all the people, I mean, all the people that I've come across and others have come across, whether it's in the southeast uh, of Asia, 
Northeast and Central Asia, the Arab world, you know, uh, Europe, Africa, or wherever you may be looking, you know, people actually aspire to the same things and feel the same pain. And it's, uh, it's, always, it's always interesting to see that people who speak of cultural relativism are never those who have been the first-hand victims of abuse. It's always those who are excusing it or defending it <laughs> as a government or you know, a particular cultural practice or a social moray, but it's never the victims themselves. During your tenure, Zaid, the world watches Britain voted to leave the European Union. Donald Trump became president. Populism surged in Europe. You were quite outspoken on these issues, and you were also criticised for being outspoken on them. What do you think was happening in this period, and why did you think it was important to speak about these topics? Well, because my first proper experience was in peacekeeping in the former Yugoslavia, where there was a cruel war in place, very complex political situation, not so complex on the moral side. It was fairly clear there was an aggressor and there was a victim in, in, in large part. And where eventually lies take you. Uh, it starts with half-truths that are embroidered into lies, and chauvinistic nationalisms are extremely dangerous. We still see it as a menacing force around Europe, we still have the U.S. elections in 2024 to worry about. So many global forces at work centrifugally and no bandwidth to deal with them that we are very much imperiled. And so there has to be a sense of urgency. And we have to walk a very fine line because if it's so hopeless, people just give up. Mm. But if you give them a false sense of security, saying it'll be all right and the youth will rescue us and technology will save us, that's also not true. It's going to require a combination of efforts and a hard work to reverse much of this. And we have to think clearly. I worry that by 2040, we'll almost be lifeboat Earth. And in any lifeboat, we either panic and the boat capsizes <laughs> and we all sink. Mm. Or we work together to rescue ourselves from the predicaments that we're in. And so we have to be resolved to doing this. But it needs clear thinking and precise thinking. And I think it's incumbent on us, on those who are heading think tanks, policy think tanks, to do less of the thinking about what and why, what's happening and why is it happening, and really devote much more energies to how in detail do we stop this? and think in very practical ways to assure ourselves that we can remove the dangers from us as a planet. I think that's really the, the job now of many of us in this business. Let me ask you about China, if I can. In recent years, China has tightened its internal controls over its population, including the Uyghurs in Xinjiang. It's adopted a, a much more assertive external policy. You haven't mentioned Hong Kong, of course. Yeah. Hong Kong, uh, I mean, there's, there's so many things one could mention, indeed coercive behavior towards Australia at present. I mean, how can the world influence China and how can the rest of the world balance the competing imperatives? We want to keep China off our backs and preserve our own freedom of movement, but at the same time, we need China's assistance to deal with global issues like climate change. And at the same time, I think we all still have an interest, a fundamental human interest in the human rights of Chinese people within China. How did you deal with China as UN High Commissioner for Human Rights and how should the world balance these competing imperatives? The two points I would raise, one, 
is that the human rights of anyone anywhere should uh, concern everyone. Mm. You know, if you ignore the sufferings of people within countries, don't be surprised when it, it comes to your doorstep at some stage, if the country is powerful enough and large enough and close enough to you. The other point, I think, is that we do need to be morally consistent. It's no use pointing out the human rights abuses in China when other countries are sort of picking and choosing what human rights they wish to observe and which they wish to ignore. It's all well and good you know, governments turning up at conferences, and they do this time and again, and wax lyrical about their dedication to a particular right. And, and then in another forum, you know, when discussing trade or when discussing financial flows, those particular issues of concern are just relegated to the point where they're unimportant. And so, you know, you have to look at the hard cases. One would see a better response coming out of China if those countries that are pointing a finger are doing their absolute best to sort out their own problems. And China will often point a finger at the U.S. and you know, uh, and uh, say to the U.S., well, you have an enormous racism issue. Not that China doesn't, by the way, of course, does itself have a problem like this. And that you should be dealing with your own problems first and settle those or Europe and its migration issues or Australia and its position on migration or whatever the issue may be. And I think, it, it, you know, it helps the advocacy part if we are as morally consistent where the law stands and stick by the law and not make rights tradable or transactionable. And it's when you start doing that, that actually your own standing and credibility sinks. And I think this is the problem, actually, that many countries in the West have been experiencing recently. That's not to say that, you know, the so-called red lines should not be raised. Uh, clearly, they, they ought to be in every country. And that's what we tried to do in my old office. I mean, we didn't distinguish between small or large, north or south, east or west. You know, wherever we believed there were violations, we would be open to speaking about much of the work we did was actually uh, quite diplomacy, but we had no hesitation going public either. And we, we didn't spare anyone uh, that we felt deserved a comment. But where we saw progress, we were willing to acknowledge the progress as well. Zaid, earlier this year, you became CEO and president of the International Peace Institute. So you're running a think tank, as I do, and you were referring earlier, I think, to the way think tanks need to approach a lot of the big issues facing the world. How have you found your first year in the think tank world, and what are the issues that you want the International Peace Institute to focus on? If we're going to capture the imagination of young people, we have to go into the how. You know, we have to go into how are we going to fix this? And without resorting to sort of well-worn platitudes and, and easy sort of gimmicky type of responses, that's where we can help create a sense of hope that we're actually trying to engineer a way out. Otherwise, we'll soon be reaching a panic mode and nothing will be accomplished. I think precise uh, thought needs to be given to the how. I think it's useful, actually, when you, <laughs> we're a very small think tank, because it allows us at least, and uh, you may be a bit different, um, Michael, because uh, the Lowy Institute, I think, is larger than we are. But it allows us to think and anticipate where we could develop uh, enormous expertise at very critical junctures mm -hmm. where governments may need that expertise. 
we can't be everywhere doing everything. Uh, our actually agenda is, I think, too large. I would like to see us pick very carefully some of the issues where we know it's going to be a very difficult proposition for governments. And so dig deep into those and develop a sort of expertise that could be relied upon. And I, I really think that's where much of the policy think tank world needs to move to. And I think uh, if we can, we will have a loyal following among especially the youth whose future will have to be decided by our generation before they pick up the mantle. Well, let me ask you a couple of questions about contemporary issues that IPI may be working on and you may have views on. Let me ask you a question about Afghanistan. Recently, we saw the United States withdraw its forces from Afghanistan. And of course, many of us are worried about what the return of the Taliban means for the human rights of Afghans, especially women and girls. To go to your, uh, the way you frame it uh, as think tanks working on, on how rather than just why and, and what, how should think tanks and how should the rest of the world hold the Taliban to account? Well, it's quite understandable why the reaction has been what it's been. Australia had a very dedicated commitment to uh, Afghanistan, my own country. You know, we had three battalions uh, for long periods of time every year. And many countries have sunk an enormous amount of uh, their treasure and lives were lost. Of course, on the Afghan side, a large number of lives were lost. So it's quite understandable that there is this sort of almost shock and deep anxiety over where the Taliban may be going. I think from the, the policy think tank world, we have to look in a manner that's perhaps less driven by a gut reaction. It's clear that IS Khorasan would, to me at least, be a worse outcome if they were to seize control of the country. And so the Taliban, there are signs that or some of them at least haven't changed since the, you know, the Taliban of the 1990s. There are signs that some have. And I think on the humanitarian side, I, I've been persuaded, others have said very openly that there should be no conditionality when it comes to the provision of humanitarian assistance. On the human rights side, there could be some conditionalities that if there were to be a recognition in steps or a series of steps, certain things would have to be adopted, human rights monitoring throughout the country. My office used to monitor those parts of the countries that the Taliban didn't have control of. And one mustn't also forget that even when the previous government was in power, you know, uh, it had some unsavory allies. You know, General Dostum was one such ally, uh, and his actions, you know, were of very deep concern to the human rights community. But not just that. I think I remember President Karzai, just before he left, he hanged, uh, I think, 14 people, and we appealed to him not to do it, and he still did it. So, you know, one has to look at Afghanistan in a manner that's a little bit more dispassionate if you're looking at it from a think tank point of view. And ultimately, a sequence whereby recognition in exchange for human rights observance will have to sort of be thought out um, if we are to avoid the worst, which is, uh, I, again, IS Khorasan essentially taking over. I think we have a role to play because we can talk to various actors and we can take a, a deeper dig into how these issues could turn out uh, in, in the future if, if they're not handled well. Let me ask you about the coronavirus pandemic. What does it reveal about 
the reality of international cooperation and the international community. It seems to me that nations have turned inwards, not outwards in response to the virus. They've looked to their national capitals, not to international organisations. And international cooperation has been lacking. For example, we see huge disparities in vaccine supply to the developed world compared to the developing world. What light does the pandemic show on the way global politics work? Yes. No, I mean, it's, it's desperately upsetting, of course. You know, the fact that we almost have a, a mirage of a international community doesn't sort of seemingly exist, really. It only exists where self-interests are at the fore and not uh, that we're part of a sort of global, <laughs> a global community. Mm. And one can see this has been long in the making and the coming. I mean, you could take any treaty negotiated after the Second World War and you could never negotiate the same terms again today. And I used to say this 20 years ago and now it's even worse. The cooperation is very limited. Maybe, you know, certain financial flows, certainly the corporate sector where money can be made cooperation seems to come about quite easily. Beyond that, we're struggling. And I think ultimately, we really will be in deep trouble again. Michael, when you get onto an airplane, I mean, I don't know if most people know this, but the International uh, Civil Aviation Organization, you know, passes regulations constantly relating to aircraft or airline safeties. We don't have 193 parliaments discuss each regulation and you know, debate it back and forth. You don't have that. None of us wants to die in a plane crash. So we all accept that for the sake of our well-being, for the sake of travel, and for the sake of tourism, you know, we will accept hard law being issued by an international regulator that's enforceable, and we will all abide by it. So why is it so difficult, therefore, for us to have similar laws when it comes to the safety and security of the planet that we live on, whether it's designed to prevent pandemics or prevent the worst effects of climate change. Mm. On climate change, I mean, I'll be in Glasgow in two weeks' time. I mean, it's so sad. It is so sad. For any structured negotiation on creating new rules and regulations, usually you, you adopt the General Assembly rules of procedure, which basically means that you try and achieve consensus where you can, and where you can't, you have a vote. The <laughs> member governments of the UNFCCC have decided that they don't want to have the rules of procedure of the General Assembly. In other words, 193 governments, each of them has a veto. And so is it hardly surprising that the ambition levels are so low? <laughs> you know, it's amazing, really. And the, the arguments that, no, no, we need perfect data before we can take one step forward. I mean, who says there's no nothing to be learned from historical examples or intuition? Must we have irrefutable evidence before we can take one step forward? Well, time is not allowing us to wait for that. Zaid, it sounds like you're not confident that an agreement will be reached at Glasgow in a couple of weeks that meets the climate challenge. Given it's up to sovereign states to determine what commitments they believe are consistent with their economic imperatives, what do you think it will take to generate the kind of international political momentum that produces a sufficient global policy response to the challenge of climate change? Well, I think it'll take us arriving at a point where we realize we're lifeboat Earth 
And we can do two things. We can either panic and again, tip the lifeboat, capsize it, and all of us uh, sink with it. Or we have to decide that many of these other issues, which seem to be formidable and uh, beyond resolution, human created, need to be resolved quickly because together we are really imperiled by something much greater and not pay lip service to multilateral action, but really work together seriously to you know, change, for instance, the international health regulation, make it far more robust, stronger verification mechanisms in place, ensure that on the climate change agenda, that we're not saying one thing as governments and then doing something completely different because we don't want to take the political hit and we leave it to a, a successor to take the hit. I mean, that sort of narrow way of thinking must be overcome. The nationally determined contributions have to be more aggressive. And I do think in the end, we have to move in the direction of a carbon tax. I mean, that's my opinion. Unless we move in that direction, we worry that all of this is just half-hearted measures. And just look at the Convention of Biological Diversity. If you look at the fifth outlook report of last year, of September 2020, I mean, the the loss of biodiversity has been colossal. In 2011, the international community came up with 20 targets under the so-called Aichi sort of plan. And uh, in 2020, not one of the targets was met, you know, and I think six were partially met. It's so tragic, this. If we're not serious, I don't really know what sort of planet we're leaving to future generations. It doesn't seem to me to be a good one. We really have to do better. And I think we have to show them and they will be out in force in in Glasgow. I think we will really feel the effects of the youth turnout. Zaid, for the final question, I want to ask you about human rights in the Arab world. You mentioned earlier that the people in the Arab world yearn for human rights just like anybody else. A decade ago or more during the Arab Spring, there was a great deal of optimism that the Arab world was changing and that people would be able to fulfill and express their human rights in a much more positive way. And then, of course, you had the atrocities of the Syrian civil war. And since then, I guess, a darkening of of the picture somewhat. As someone who comes from that part of the world and made a lot of your career in the furthering of the human rights project, are you an optimist about this subject? Do you think that over time, the human rights situation in the Arab world will improve? I think around the world, so long as we can deal with the global phenomena effectively, so, you know, climate change, future pandemics, and the geopolitical sort of tensions and the conflicts that we have raging in different parts of the world, so long as we can sort those out, I think over time in every part of the world we'll be able to see progress. But it will always be cyclical and we'll always have, you know, reversal. And it's been like that ever since we we just have to read Homo sapiens and Yuval Harari explains it beautifully, you know, how essentially once we went through this sort of cognitive revolution, how we began to understand ourselves and how we began to work as a so these small communities and emerge from an existence which was more solitary. And it brought with it peril and it brought with it opening of, uh, so let's say, an enlightenment and an open to a path to where we are today. It's just now acceleration is just so phenomenal. 
that it, it's hard for us to comprehend where we're going with all of this. I like to think that we will continue to see progress, but not without the struggle that comes with it. And if you think about it, Michael, there's very little in terms of social progress that begins with a whim by a majority of a population. You know, slavery globally as a, as a business model was hugely successful for everyone but the slave. I mean, it was, it was so successful, it lasted for centuries. And then when it began, when, you know, these odd voices began to speak of abolition, particularly in the global north, you know, they were seen as hated disruptors of a system that was working for everyone except the slave. And when you look at whether it be apartheid or the, you know, the ending of the use of the death penalty, wherever, you find that it usually begins with a minority opinion and uh, initially provokes a howls of protests and, and denunciation from the, from the majority. And then over time, it becomes accepted as a norm. And we make progress like that. That's why I, you know, I'm always uh, filled with admiration for grassroots human rights defenders. They overcome that first human instinct of self-preservation and are willing to be sent to you know, long terms of imprisonment for just you know, expressing an opinion, the right to freedom of expression, or to be calling out a government for its failure to provide health or adequate housing or adequate education or whatever the issue may be in certain repressive societies. This is enough to merit a, a visit to the local prison. And so, you know, you look at people like that and you think it's amazing that they're not sort of calculating away and thinking, well, I'm not going to stick my neck out, let someone else do it. And so that gives us hope. Zaid, your career has taken you from the desert police to the halls of diplomacy, to the international civil service, and now to the think tank world. And I've really enjoyed speaking to you today and hearing about your journey from Amman to Zagreb to Geneva and Washington and New York. So thank you very much, Zaid Rad Al-Hussein, for joining me today from New York City on The Director's Chair. Thank you, Michael. Uh, very much enjoyed it. Thank you. You've been listening to The Director's Chair, a podcast by the Lowy Institute, hosted by me, Michael Fulilove. Thanks for listening. <laughs>